Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legvold. Joining us today on Beneath the Wing is Danelle Roweeder. Danelle is officially retiring from the 210th Engineer Installation Squadron, a part of the 133rd Airlift Wing this August. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, she is retiring as the personnelist, but before that served in several commander support staff and services positions. She's also a military spouse. Her husband serves in the Minnesota Army National Guard. She's a mother and a grandmother and has gone through the transition from active National Guard service member to a civilian career. She's currently a mental health professional clinical intern with a private provider in the southern metro area of the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I, I hope I got all that you right. You did, yes. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> hey, you joined the Minnesota Air National Guard in 2003. I did. Why did you do that? I joined actually to get my college paid for. I was going to do six years and get my bachelor's degree and move on with my life. And I ended up obviously really loving the guards, specifically the 133rd, and they became a family for me. So I decided to, to stay and continue for the full 20. Worth sticking around, right? It was. What was the highlight of your career? Um, just the highlight of my career... I would really just say working with all the people. Um, becoming full-time at the base was great experience for me as I got to meet a lot of people, um, gain a lot of experiences from them as well as giving them some um, of my um, things that I could provide as well. And so, yeah, I think just part of part of just being uh, full-time with the, with the 133rd was a highlight. Yeah, a lot of nice people up there. Yeah. Um, so you have successfully transitioned from uniformed military service member to a civilian career uh, where you're currently working in your passion area. Would you call it your passion area? I would consider it my passion area. Okay, tell us a little bit about your job because I, I did tell everybody what you're doing, but can you tell us exactly what it is you say you do here? Sure. So I am actually graduating in May um, from Bethel University with my master's in clinical mental health counseling. Um, so what I do here at um, my clinical internship site is providing individual or family um, therapy to individuals that are ranging from anywhere from like six to 50 years old and it could be a wide variety of different issues and so um, my caseload usually consists of about 18 to 20 um, individuals a week and um, it's been a great experience but I am going to be ending my clinical internship here in in May so I'm excited to continue moving forward. What happens after you finish your internship? So I am actually going to come back to this small private practice in September, um, but I am taking the summer off just to re-engage and connect with my family since it's been it's been an adventure these last three years. Yeah, it's a lot to balance. You've been actually working full-time at the base, going through the retirement process and the transition process, plus going to school, Yes. and you've got an active household. Yes. Two, two kids at home? Two kids at home. All right. Mm -hmm. 
both in the elementary years, is that right? Uh, no, actually, one's in high school, freshman in high school oh my now. Goodness. Yeah, and then the other one is a seventh grader. Well, my apologies to the girls. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember seeing the pictures at the desk. Yeah. So, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and, and like I said, that's your passion area. Uh, you've kind of found a niche. Uh, going through your internship, as you described it to me, where there's a lot of need, especially for people that are dressed like you used to be and like I am today. Um, first off, why was the working in the world of mental health really important to you? And then we'll get into some of the veteran-specific issues. Well, actually working in mental health um, and being a service member and being a spouse of a service member is the one that really pushed me into becoming a mental health provider um, because I see that need. Um, we have service members, we have spouses, we have children that are all impacted um, by the service that the individual is providing. And so um, that's really what pushed me into, into this career field. Um, and I'm noticing more and more that there is a significant, of course, that stigma is being lifted a little bit more and more as time comes. However, it's still very prevalent um, among service members and they're really hesitant to receive the mental health care that they need. And receive it early enough um, to be able to help them so that it doesn't become a lot more significantly worse than I, I'm glad you bring up the, the idea of that, that mm -hmm. stigma, um, especially when it comes to mental health, mental wellness, and, and members of the military. The National Institutes of Health said that approximately 60% of military personnel who are experiencing mental health problems don't seek mm -hmm. help. There's the stigma there. What's getting in the way of that? So a lot of individuals, and I know I've actually had a few uh, service members that come in and have already seen me, and their biggest thing is they're worried that they're not going to be able to deploy. They're worried that their the medical facility that they are currently assigned to is going to have access to their records, going to have access to whatever diagnosis that they've been given when they come to therapy, and that's going to prevent them from being able to continue to serve or even deploying. Um, and so that is one of the biggest obstacles that I'm noticing right now within our service members um, in getting the help that they need. Because we do, we want to deploy and do our job. More importantly, like you mentioned earlier, stay with the family and the team that we've gotten, we've gotten to know and love. Yeah. Uh, like every every family, there's, uh, there's good relationships mm -hmm. there. Um, so that stigma sometimes sticks because sometimes uh, a service member can't deployed because of a mental health issue. What does that look like and how do you help them um, in that process? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the individual, again, most mental health issues are anxiety and depression. Those are the core main um, things that we would see, especially within our service members. Um, and them receiving, again, those interventions to help them manage their depressive and their anxiety symptoms earlier is going to allow them to be more available to the organization, be more available to their families. Um, we don't typically see a ton of what we would consider like disorders or diagnoses that would be anything more significant than that. Um, and so that would be like my message that I would want to have out for the veterans and military current service members is to say, come and get the help that you need because it, for anxiety and depressive symptoms, that early intervention is what's going to help you be able to be successful both at home and then also with your unit. 
So you, you mentioned a mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just a novice here. I, I know er, almost everything I, I know I learned from Google. Um, can you describe what the difference is between a mental health condition or a mental health disorder? Uh, yeah, you know, everybody goes through ebbs and flows in their general mood. And sometimes, you know, especially here in Minnesota where we have snow on the first day of early spring, I'm depressed about it. Uh, is that a disorder? Is that something I just get over? Can you just kind of talk me through that so I have a better understanding? Yeah, absolutely. So again, it is considered to be more of a, a disorder. Um, we, when you were talking about the winter months, right, yeah. and the ebbs and flows, that's what we consider seasonal effectiveness disorder, yeah. um, which is part of, very much a part of depression. However, you get over it um, with vitamin D, with getting outside and then um, and nature, you eventually overcome that disorder. Um, now, when we are referring to anxiety and depression, that would be also considered a disorder mm -hmm. as well. Um, it's just those symptoms might look a little bit different. I always like to tell my clients that mental health is a roller coaster, right? And so you're going to have some days your anxiety and depression is very low. You're going to be feeling really, really good. And mm -hmm. then some days they're going to be really, really high and it's just going to ebb and flow. And that's normal. That's just part of being a human um, because having anxiety specifically is how we've been able to stay alive all these years, right? There's good anxiety and there's bad anxiety. Yeah. Um, my focus is to help those individuals be able to work through the bad anxiety so it doesn't necessarily impact, um, again, their their personal lives and their professional lives. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask, you know, what what's your job in that as a, a trusted counselor? You know, the roller coaster that yeah. somebody goes on. I mean, I, I'm not a big mm -hmm. fan of them. But when you get to the top and you can see all over the place and then there's this just moment of peace and suddenly you're rushing and you're completely out of control. What's your job in that roller coaster through that? Yeah, and so that's actually a really great question. Um, so mental health providers, I like to consider that to be kind of an art, right? When you look at artwork, everybody has their own different styles. And so when you consider going to therapy or finding a therapist, you want to find one that really fits you well, um, because we all have our different specialties. So when you ask me how I help my clients manage some of those peaks and valleys, those highs and lows of their um, anxiety and depressive symptoms, I really teach them how to be in tune with their body. Um, so what kind of emotions are you experiencing within yourself right now? Are you feeling it in your chest? Are you feeling it in your, in your stomach? Are you feeling it in your hands, your feet? And letting them become a little bit more aware of those sensations that cause that anxiety. Um, and then I will help them be able to use some of those coping skills, healthy coping skills to be able to self-regulate themselves so that they can slow their heart rate down, become a little bit less hyper aware. Mm -hmm. What's, what are some of the coping skills that you would teach somebody that goes through that? Yeah. So I teach a lot of breathing. So I, um, as I am still new in this field, I'm still kind of learning what my touch is. Um, however, I have learned that breathing and becoming emotionally regulated has been, and is actually research-based, that it's instrumental in, in lowering some of those anxious and depressive symptoms. So I teach a lot of um, breathing exercises, mindfulness exercises. Um, we do body scans in, in session as well to kind of help you be aware of some of those somatic feelings. 
Um, we do a lot of positive self-talk. Um, we learn a lot about people's core beliefs. What are, how do you see the world and how do you think the world sees you? Or, some of, or just a few of the things that we do in therapy. Is it okay for me to do self-talk out loud? Or does when people listen to me doing my self-talk, do they, do they guess that I'm not doing very well? Well, as long as it's positive self-talk, okay. <laughs> then I think you're okay. Because I do talk to myself quite a bit, especially when I'm like working out in the shop and call myself all kinds of names. I probably need to improve right. on that. Yes. Make sure you're noticing that it's negative and replacing those with more positive. You, you mentioned the core beliefs, and I just want to... Let's talk stereotypically for a little while about people that wear the uniform. Mm -hmm. One of the core beliefs is we have to be tougher than most because we do hard things. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes back to the idea that people in the military maybe have a harder time seeking the help that they really need from someone like you, Danelle, because they have that core belief. Mm -hmm. If I go see somebody and I get help, I'm not as strong as I once was. How do you talk somebody through that? How do you just get them into the door when they really do need that? Yeah, so, well, a lot of therapy is building that therapeutic relationship first. Um, and so when you have a service member that comes in and has that core belief of they need to be strong and them coming to therapy, all of a sudden then they feel weak. Um, it just takes a lot of talk therapy. It helps me validating their feelings, um, helping them and encouraging them to find that they are strong still just because they're getting the help that they need and giving them those that positive affirmations. Um, and then we would dig into a little bit more of their core belief and what that looks like to them. Um, and if they feel like their core belief is not helping them, how do we work around changing that core belief so that it's more helpful, gives them a clear view of themselves and how they interact in the world and the military? Yeah. Does that help uh, once somebody gets into a relationship like that? Mm -hmm. um, getting them in the door is the first first issue. That's, that's kind of a struggle sometimes. Uh, but once they get in, does that help to level out the roller coaster a little bit? You know, breathing exercises is something that I would have a real hard time going through just because, you know, my core belief is you just bury everything down deep, deep down inside and you never bring it up until it just naturally comes up. And that's usually a bad part of the roller coaster for me. But, um, Getting somebody in the door, getting them to start talking about that so that they can say, I'm strong when I get help. Mm -hmm. That's that's a struggle to get through. Mm -hmm. um, there's even a bigger struggle than that. And you mentioned, you know, kids. You're seeing people from 6 to 60 right now. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about mental health issues with the kids uh, within military families? And then we'll talk a little bit about the broader family structure. Yeah, so the, the kids that I have been seeing, they experience a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. So what, what we notice with kids is they're going to come in and they're going to say, I'm just really worried. I really am worried. My stomach always hurts. They don't know that that's anxiety, but that's what it is, right? And so with them, we're just teaching them how to identify some of their emotions, kind of what's going on, what's going on at home. And so with you talk about the broader family system right but with six-year-olds seven-year-olds eight-year-olds even nine-year-olds we really do incorporate the entire family into mm -hmm. the session um because it takes a system right um so the parents are usually in session 
with their with their kiddo and I'm doing a lot of psychoeducation with the parents. I am teaching the children how to identify some of their feelings, talk about kind of what's going on. What are you scared of? Dad's deploying, mom's deploying. What are you scared of? What are what are some of those concerns that you have? And let's kind of talk through them. Yeah. How about the, uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, kiddos are, they tune into how this is impacting their body first before they're able to talk about how it's impacting their, their emotions or their mental wellness. And you talk adults through becoming more in tune with their, how their anxiety or their stress or their depression is affecting their body and then becoming in tune with that. It's a, such an interesting difference. At some point, you switch gears. Kids are so in tune with their bodies and adults seem to be much more in tune with their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the relationship between service member and spouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the unique challenges that you're seeing there, and how do you address those? So the service member, as compared to the spouse, it's interesting as I reflect back on a spouse that I'm currently working with, it's navigating some of those those dynamics of being in the military that this individual specifically is struggling with. Well, my spouse is this way and they're this way and they're this way. And it's trying to help them navigate them by saying, Hey, maybe this is just part of part of being in the military. How do we balance that? Do we have your, your spouse come in and we can talk through some of those, um, some of those things. Um, that's typically how I manage, not just service members and their spouses, but really, any individual that comes in that's married and has issues with their significant other. Yeah. A lot, a lot of uh, communication I'm sure mm-hmm. goes with that, but you have to frame it a little differently. Obviously in this career field, we chose this, mm-hmm. we continue to choose this. And when our military family is going down range or they're, they are deploying. And if we are excluded from that, it is a loss and we miss that. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's felt, uh, it's tough for a spouse, I think, to understand that if they haven't had a long time with a service member. Um, when when you were starting to go through your training uh, to get into this job, obviously you knew that there were a lot of um, mental health issues that needed to be addressed. We needed good professionals with a compassionate and empathetic heart to go through this. Did you see you filling this kind of niche within the military community, is this what you were really looking for? Or is this just something you're kind of falling into? I have, so my bachelor's degree is in human services. um, And so I've always been drawn to helping other people. Um, And so it hasn't been much of a a surprise to me when all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, I really want to get into the mental health field. Um, And so I can recall many, many, many years ago, probably about 10 years ago, when I was going to get my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. 10 years ago, my kids were very little. And so I was like, this isn't going to work for me. Um, And so as I was beginning to recognize, hey, I am getting close to retirement. Do I want to continue being AGR or do I want to transition into the civilian world? And um, I'm a Christian. And so I really was just letting... um, letting, I was letting myself listen to God. Where did he want me to go? And this is really the direction where he, he really pulled me to go. It's a good place where you can use your faith um, to help a lot of people. Can you talk for somebody that hasn't been through um, counseling 
What's, what's the relationship like? How do you start it? What's a typical session like for somebody? Oh, that's a fantastic question. It can be super overwhelming for a lot of people that have not been to therapy um, because they think, they think Freudian, right? Freudian is very much like, why don't you just lay on my couch and I'm going to psychoanalyze you. Um, but that's not at all what it is. Um, so just the structure of how therapy works, the first session, you come in and I'm just gaining information about you. Tell me about what brings you to therapy. Tell me about your family. What are some things that you like to do? Just really getting to know my client. The second session, it's usually a little bit more of the same. I'm just gathering more information. By the third session, I have enough information gathered where my client and I will go ahead and we'll do their treatment plan together. So I work very collaboratively with my clients. And so we do their treatment planning. Um, and then so therefore, based off of whatever their goals are for therapy, that's what we work on in session. So um, each session is about 50 minutes long. Um, and we usually do anywhere from eight to 12 weeks, um, depending on the significant concerns that that client is having. A treatment plan sounds like a lot of, you know, just goal setting with an individual and having a person to talk through that. Is that a good assessment of that? Or what, what are some good goals that somebody could have that, that would walk through the door here? Sure. So let's just go with basics. So we have an individual that has anxiety and it's been very impactful in their life. They're not able to go out and socialize with individuals. They're not able to get to school or to go to work. And so with that, I would, their treatment goal would be to decrease their anxiety so that they're, are not, it's not impacting in their life anymore. Mm -hmm. And so as they come into session, we would do a lot of talking What's kind of been going on? How has your anxiety been this week? Um, and then also teaching them some of those skills to be able to decrease their anxiety, such as like the breathing, the positive self-talk, um, to be able to guide them into being able to get back into work and decreasing that anxiety. When you when you when when they come in, um, and having gone through a, a, a relationship with a counselor, um, when, at one of my peaks and valleys yeah. in, in, in life, uh, I found it extraordinarily helpful because, yeah, you get that chance to vent uh, and talk about what's what's going well, what's not going well, but then you do have that, you know, third party in your life, not your significant other, uh, where you can get some good advice and um, some some strong encouragement in life. When is somebody done? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's what yeah. people say. I don't want to go because they're just going to... It's a racket. They're going to come in and just keep me coming. Yes. But you mentioned this eight week. Is that a sweet spot? When is somebody done? So, um, so here's, this is kind of the funny part of it. Um, so men, and this is not have to do with the military or anything. It just, men tend to come anywhere from three to four times. You had kind of mentioned that you keep your feelings buried. Sure. And so as soon as all of their feelings start pulling back up, they're like, out of control and so they need to come in and talk to somebody process a lot of their feelings things that are going on and within two or three sessions they're like I feel great like I will call you if I need you and so that's typically how it is um, with most men not all but most men would be like that um, but typically I have been here at my site since June and I still have clients on my caseload is it because they don't need to be discharged? They Have they not met their treatment goals? Absolutely not. They're definitely in that process of meeting their treatment goals. They like the relationship. 
They like coming in to me either every other week or once a month at this point to be able just to process stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and then some, it's between 8 to 12, um, like I previously said. 8 to 12 is typically when you become stable enough that you can manage some of those stressors on your own. But again, it really just all depends on, on the significance of what's kind of going on in your life. Yeah. So you're looking for evidence of somebody that's a little bit, they're skilled at self-regulating it. Is that a way of putting that that's fair? Yep, absolutely. Great. Um, I want to talk real quick about, uh, you know, people see somebody that's transitioning out of the military or they're currently serving the military and they see the, uh, the stereotype that gets attached if you've deployed is automatically Oh, you must have PTSD. Mm -hmm. What do you look for uh, when you're working with it? Because I work with a lot of really good uh, folks that have gone through a diagnosis of PTSD, and it's hard. Um, what are the challenges associated with that as a diagnosis? So with PTSD, when it comes to coming into a, a private office is you would already be stable. Um, so typically individuals that, and not just veterans, service members, but anybody that's experienced any kind of trauma, um, they would do inpatient treatment first just to create that stability for them. However, individuals like come in and we consider it to be like PTS, right? So they just have post-traumatic stress, but it's not necessarily a disorder. Mm -hmm. We're managing a lot of that. I'm not going to ask them to come in and tell me, tell me about your traumatic experience traumatic story, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask them that. I'm going to ask them, how did your traumatic event impact you so that we can go ahead and work how their body is responding to that traumatic experience that their brain has gone through. Um, and so it's a slower, it's a little bit of a slower process. Um, individuals are, they need a lot of stabilization still, um, even if they get impatient. And then it's just kind of working through how to, again, self-regulate. A lot of it has to do with the body. Um, self-regulate some of their emotions um, and their sensations and feelings in their body so that they're not triggered by certain events that might cause them to feel like they're unsafe. Yeah, so really you're, you're looking to help them recognize those physical signs and address them before it gets to be too much of a peak and valley roller coaster ride again. Yes, absolutely. Um, we are, uh, we're rounding out, uh, we've had a generation, uh, you came in in 2003 and you left in 2023. I mean that your entire time of service, we were a nation at war. Mm -hmm. We're going to see a lot of veterans that are like you, mm -hmm. uh, retired, separated like me soon, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. retiring, separating and, um, something is going to happen in their lives that is going to get them back into this roller coaster ride of emotion. What advice do you have for folks? What should they be looking out for if they're a veteran that's been out of the service for a little while? Yeah, I would just encourage them to pay really close attention to their body um, and how some of those sensations are impacting them. Um, and just, of course, to get the help early. Um, so one of the the things I like to tell individuals is our feelings and emotions are like, um, think of like your closet um, and you're going to be putting stuff on top of the shelf in your closet and you're just piling up all these feelings and feelings and feelings on top of that shelf. But at some point that shelf's going to fall yeah. 
And then all of a sudden now you're not coming into therapy just to process some of these emotions and feelings and things that are happening in your life. You're looking at getting stabilized. We're working on stabilizing you. Um, and so that's why I would say it's super important for individuals to come to therapy early instead of waiting until it's, it's really too late. Yeah. Not too late, because it's never too late, it's, but it's, <laughs> until it's later, and then all of a sudden we're working with something a little bit more significant. Yeah, because, I mean, you can when you're on that roller coaster, you, you can immediately feel as soon as the, the chain link hits that mm -hmm. car and that you get that bump, it's a good time to say, yes. it's time to go in and start talking about this. Yeah. I've been talking with Danelle Roweeder. She is retiring out of the 133rd airlift wing. Uh, she's currently a mental health professional, clinical intern, soon to be done, uh, at a private provider in the southern metro area. We're going to take a quick break. I hope you join us for our second half. Hi, this is Mary Matson, and I'm the Director of Psychological Health for the 133rd Airlift Wing. The Psychological Health Program supports and coordinates mental health access for 133rd members and their dependents. I offer referral, short-term solution-focused counseling, consultation, crisis intervention, and education. You can contact me by stopping by my office located in the Airman Wellness Center, building 631 on the second floor, and room 237. My office phone is 612-713-2099, or my work cell phone at 612 Seven one zero four four seven seven. Again, that is six one two seven one zero four four seven seven. Thank you and take care. I've been talking with Danelle Roweeder. Uh, thanks for again for joining me on the second half of Beneath the Wing. Thank you. Um, so we've talked a lot about uh, mental health and, and military awareness of, of mental health and getting people help when they need it. Um, knowing that you are retiring from the Minnesota Air National Guard and you had like eight years of active duty service during your big career, um, what would you say is the most difficult thing you had to face in your military career? I would say the most difficult thing would be balancing family and the military career. Uh, I was a single mom for a period of time during that. And so being able to commit to doing things with the military, going on TDYs, doing those trainings, while also making sure I had care for, for my kids um, was very difficult um, and making sure that they understood like when I was coming home, where I was going and they, they were very aware of their mom's schedule. Mm -hmm. I think that was really, that was really difficult. And then, yeah, especially with George Floyd with civil disturbance, um, that was probably a very challenging time too, especially as being a military spouse with my husband's um, position that he has in the army, um, with him being gone so long and not knowing when he was coming home. And um, those were definitely challenging. Facing uncertainty is something that military members um, bring their families along with. Yes. <laughs> yes. Some of those challenges. How did you How did you approach that with your kids? Because your your kids were quite young uh, when you were going through the single mom uh, episode. How did you approach communicating with them, mm -hmm. and what were some of the ways that you mitigated that? 
Yeah, so a lot of that was just being really transparent with them um, because kids know when you're hiding things. And so being able to tell them exactly what was going on, this is when I'm coming home, These are when, this is when I'm going to be able to call you, maybe I'm not going to be able to call you this time, um, and just having that consistent schedule with them so that they feel secure um, by knowing that, knowing what the schedule is, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. That being able to talk them through that, hey, mom might not be able to call you for mm -hmm. five days, uh, four days, depending on where you're off training or off deployed to, uh, that can be a struggle for the kids. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think, you know, obviously you're the expert here. <laughs> Transparency with kids, mm -hmm. they, you're right, they yes. see you. Um, as adults, we get really good at hiding, mm -hmm. uh, hiding things that we're dealing with and, and struggles. Uh, difficulties. Um, we talked about the stigma, uh, why military members won't seek help when they really, really need help. Um, some of those core beliefs, being tough, um, not wanting to miss out on a deployment and leave our military family. And sometimes the roller coaster ride gets way out of control. And suicide awareness and uh, mental health implications or actions around that uh, has received a lot of It's received a lot of attention, but it still feels like we're, we as a big organization are not under control. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about it. Okay. What do we, what do we need to look for uh, with the people that we care about if we see them going from uh, mental mm -hmm. wellness maintenance mm -hmm. uh, and we start to see this mental health emergency? So we, the military, does a really good job of being able to tell service members what to look for and, and being a good wingman, right? And so, um, and identifying what it is, what those suicidal factors are, what it looks like. But I, what I think is important and may have be a little bit missed um, is helping service members recognize what their stressors are. How do they know when they're becoming too stressed? How do they intervene at that time? And what are some preventative things that they can do? So one of the things with suicide is there's a lot of protective factors that go into it. As a mental health professional, that's what we look for. Um, individuals that are have suicidal ideations, even a plan or intent, we look at what are their protective factors. And so recognizing um, other service members or even yourself as a service member, what your protective factors are and being able to foster those is what's gonna keep you safe from even getting to the point of having those suicidal thoughts and then also having other people recognize those as well, um, such as family. If all of a sudden, you know, somebody is becoming a little bit more distant from their family, um, that would be considered a risk um, because family is a protective factor. Um, not eating well, not sleeping, um, not doing the things that they typically enjoy doing. Um, those are all things that need to be looked at um, when it's when you're looking at somebody that might have some suicidal tendencies. Um, is again being aware of what their protective factors are and if those are kind of going away. Um, just unpack that term because that's mm -hmm. a new one for me. Protective factors mm -hmm. is that just something that someone really holds close to them and is. That's one of those things where you can immediately see, okay, my family might be my protective factor when I start to separate myself from them. Is mm -hmm. that what you mean by that? Yes. And so typically family is a number one protective factor for a lot of individuals, um, especially 
when they are a close-knit family. And so many individuals will come in here and will say, what are some things that are keeping you safe from, from harming yourself? And they'll say, well, my mom or my dad or my brother, my sister, my even friends, social network. Um, and so as soon as you kind of recognize that that is not becoming so protective for them anymore, keeping them safe, and they don't really care so much about hurting mom, dad, brother, sister, friends, that's when it becomes um, evident that there's a need for mm -hmm. further care. Yeah. So, And also a, a safety plan. Um, so any individuals that do show that they um, have suicidal ideations, a plan, an intent, um, have somebody work with them on a safety plan. Um, it doesn't have to be a mental health professional. Um, it could be Mary, you know, even Mary Matson. I know, as a the director of psychological health, she can work through that as well. But family, friends, wingmen can help um, them complete a safety plan. What are some things that they can do if they're feeling like they're at risk? Who can they call? Um, do they have firearms at home that maybe need to be locked up? Prescription medications, Tylenol, um, all those things that are going to make sure that they're they're safe. Um. If I'm just working with my friends and working with my colleagues, what are some of those things that I really ought to look for mm -hmm. if I start to say, you know, or see where I can be that first line of defense or that first line of help, that good wingman mm -hmm. in those circumstances? What should I be looking for? You should be looking for if they're not sleeping, if they're starting to isolate themselves, um, if they're not eating, if they're typically like, hey, let's go out to... You know, Zubas or wherever, and they're like, no, I'm good. I'd rather just stay in my office or not do anything. Um, self-care. A lot of self-care tendencies will go down. You'll notice that their grooming habits are not as um, as great as they used to be. Um, those are the things that are very, very evident and what you can tell in others that might need a little bit of extra help. Okay, I appreciate you articulating that. What's the next step? Then? To get them help? Yes. I would recommend just talking to them, um, just kind of see what's going on um, and encouraging them to maybe go see Mary Matson, um, have them reach out to a therapist, their chaplain, um, to talk about some of those things. Um, but really just allowing them to feel comfortable talking to you and being able to say like, yeah, I am, I'm feeling like really crummy right now is kind of what's going on um, that is where it's going to be the most beneficial for that individual instead of just saying like hey you need to go and be admitted into the hospital because you're showing some tendencies of being suicidal yeah well, asking that next question uh, when when somebody starts to unload mm -hmm. uh, or to start to vent and say yeah I'm, not, I'm really not doing that well um, and getting the, to that next level of trust in the relationship between, you know, coworkers to say, hey, let me go and with you and we'll get you some help mm -hmm. that you need. Is that a bad thing in a person's mm -hmm. career or is that a positive thing? No, it's a positive thing. So if they're getting the help that they need early, of course, um, by that intervention, um, it's not going to be from my perspective, of course, it's not looked at as a bad thing, right. right? It looks like, you know, they have these suicidal thoughts, they're feeling really down right now, but they want to get better. Right. And so it shows the strength that that individual has in order to say, I can't do this on my own. I need somebody to help me through it. Yeah. And, and 
no human being is more important or less important than a career, right? right? Absolutely, and we're and it, it all blends together, right? So if we're not at our ultimate best in our personal life or mentally, um, then of course we're not going to give our best to the mission. Huh. And so that's what is critical to understand too: is we we need to be mentally healthy. Yep, absolutely. So mental health, mental wellness went through a very very difficult uh, phase uh, the last three years has been a, kind of a tough one with the COVID pandemic. Um, what have you seen as some of the successful measures that have come through the challenges that we had during COVID? Everybody talks about the bad stuff. What's been some of the good stuff when it comes to mental wellness? Some of the good stuff, I would say, I think people have recognized the importance of family um, and also their friends as their social network. And so people were rushing so much before COVID. They were doing so many different things that they weren't really engaged with their family. And so they are recognizing more now how important their families are and kind of go back to that protective factor. And it's something that's keeping them mentally healthy too is that connection that they have with their families, whether it's their you know, nuclear family, their extended family, um, it's it, in general, just overall family. Yeah, I just got done interviewing our newest airmen coming into the service, and we did kind of a special uh, with them, and I've just been so impressed. They're incredibly bright and highly motivated, and they lived through this uh, COVID uh, difficulties at such important times during their life. High school graduation got missed, uh, prom got missed, all the things that they've lived through as a cohort. What what do you see that's good about the mental wellness of our newest service members coming in? I would say they, I recognize, are very resilient. Um, they, they're not necessarily having to be taught it. Like I remember back when resiliency was a thing that we were being taught. You had to teach us how to be resilient. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? But they are just, that's just the way that they are now because of what they've had to experience it. Like you said, they were being taught from home, missing graduations, missing proms. Um, and so they've had to learn how to adapt um, to the changing world around them. And they, yeah, they've done great. Yeah. It, it, they're they're an incredible batch, and, and I'm just excited. You and I can both be excited retiring out of this military career field that we're leaving it in pretty darn good hands. Yes. Yep. Um, so the uh, second half of the podcast, we try to get a little light. I know we talked started talking about uh, suicide and suicide awareness, but uh, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, doing quick questions, so. The first thing that pops in your head, these are hard questions. All these have been softballs up till now, right? Right. Army or Air Force? Air Force. Best thing about raising daughters? They share my clothes. I can share their clothes. Oh, that's always fun. <laughs> Cabernet or Chardonnay? Cabernet. What's your go-to pastime? Running. Karaoke song you're most likely to sing? <laughs> Sweet Caroline. What kind of car did you drive in high school? A Oldsmobile Achieva. Best live concert you've ever been to? Hillsong. United. And the most famous person you've ever met? 
I don't think I've ever met a famous person. Really? No. All right. It obviously wasn't that memorable, so I don't think I met one. Okay. Fair enough. I, I'll go with you on the on the cab over a Chardonnay any day of the week. Yes. You can usually tell if it's a good vineyard or not, right? Right. Um, so the military's been a big part of your life for 20 years. Um, how's the transition really gone for you? Mm -hmm. um, and what were some of the challenges that you faced? Yeah, that's actually interesting that you bring that up because um, Scott, my husband, and I were actually discussing that just recently and how well this transition has gone for me um, because there were there was some fears, there was some concerns, um, really just ending, especially an AGR career, um, and starting over on this whole new career as an intern, getting paid very little, um, and how that would look like for our family, how that would look like for me, would I be happy, would I still be challenged, and so I would say the transition for me personally has gone much better than I even expected it to, to go, um, because then also I, I love my job, I love helping people, and I love being part of their life and walking them through some of these challenges. Yeah. You've been pretty fortunate, and you get to come back to work here in September, right? And start yes. your practice all all new and newly certified. Yes, it's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> so, song by Kenny Chesney is it five o'clock somewhere or seventeen hundred somewhere? It's five o'clock somewhere. Of course, it is. <laughs> uh, Danelle, I just want to say thanks for joining me on Beneath the Wing. Um, congratulations on your upcoming retirement and best wishes on your new career. Um, and also thank you for your commitment to continuing to help service members even in your retirement. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, if you're experiencing a mental health crisis, please dial 988 for immediate help. The National Suicide Crisis Lifeline operates 24-7, 365 and you're never alone. If you're a veteran, you can enter one for specific assistance for our community. Uh, no one's ever alone. Military One Source is also a great place to go and can be found at militaryonesource.mil or 1-800-273-8255. Danelle, did I miss anything? There is, if you Google search a walk-in free at Minneapolis uh, mental health clinic, you'll search up that and that will come up with an additional um, resource where you can do free telehealth. Um, and so they won't be asking any questions about insurance. So, so veterans specifically should feel hopefully more secure using that site as well. Absolutely. And thank you for that. Thanks again for sharing your story on Beneath the Wing. Thank you.